Hello, welcome to episode 48 of Herpsological Highlights. Uh, my name's Tom Major and co-hosting with me is Ben Marshall. And uh, this is the podcast where we talk all about herpsological science. And this week, this bi-week I should say, we are going to be talking about climate change. Which sounds a little bit bleak, but uh, hopefully it won't be too bleak. Well this is the thing, is it almost doesn't sound as bleak as it should, because climate change has been wonderfully uh the term has been wonderfully sort of neutralized hasn't it what from hearing it too much well from hearing it a little bit too much and like it all global warming was a a bigger term previous to it right and then things sort of shifted towards climate change because it's like okay well some places aren't actually going to get hotter but they're going to change in different ways changes in precipitation might get colder at certain times of year might get more variable so like warming as a blanket term isn't super useful but then climate change mm. has been used so much and on both sort of uh, for all sorts of purposes for for sort of denialist purposes as well as people actually paying attention and realizing what's going on so it almost feels not particularly correct now because it's too neutral what do you think it should be then well i've been seeing you know climate crisis has been used quite a lot as a term for describing what's going on yeah (sighs) like i'm i'm comfortable using that whether that's got too much political weight behind it for some people then maybe but well yeah but i think those people who find things that 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 have too much clout like that are just People who want to continue with the status quo and keep their heads in the sand and like. So we are we are we going to opt for climate crisis then during during the podcast <laughs> and uh, well, be part I, be part of the the shift away from climate change as um, a sort of neutered term because it's not like it's 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 going against the uh, sort of motivation or justification in the papers because these papers are conservation papers they're geared towards okay. Things are changing rapidly, human caused. We should probably get an idea of what's going on, what species are impacted, and how we're going to deal with that. So the impetus and the justification is coming from that same sort of uh, standpoint. So I don't feel like we're being particularly dishonest to the papers replacing that term. No, I think I'll probably say climate change and then correct myself afterwards. Or I'll say something along the lines of, or climate crisis i also (laughs) liked the way that as you were saying that sentence some really dramatic thunder broke in the background which just kind of added like extra clout and credence to your statement about climate crisis it's almost as if nature's crying out that you're you're, yes (laughs) my spokesman's here i've got a i've got a small little boom box hidden in the corner of the room i just hit a little button for or a little casio keyboard with thunder effects on it uh, DJ, D- sorry. <laughs> um, yeah, so the reason we're doing this episode, obviously, we're living in a time where in the background at all times there is this climate catastrophe, we could say. And also, um, there's loads of uh, protests and stuff going on in the UK at the minute. Extinction Rebellion are popping off. Um, it's a really big deal in the news. They're doing crazy stuff like gluing themselves to stuff and um, putting boats in big squares in London to represent sea level rise. And um, we actually had this episode suggested to us by one of our patrons, Richard Southworth. And uh, 
it was following a heat wave that we had in the UK in February where it was just ridiculously hot. And um, yeah, it, it just didn't make any sense that there was this heat wave in winter. And I think that spurred uh, Richard to send us some papers about climate change, one of which we have covered and we've picked, well, we've picked another one. Um, but yeah, so it's basically just about climate change and amphibians and, well, some effects that project, well, climate change which has already happened has had on US populations of amphibians and then there's another paper looking at how our friendly little toads are being affected or will be affected by uh, shorter warmer hibernation as the climate catastrophe unfolds mm. but um, yeah so I think it's important as well I, don't, I mean I guess we don't want to lay it on too thick with this climate catastrophe stuff um, but it's enough to say that uh, in our opinions, well, it's a fact, isn't it now? Climate is changing because <laughs> yes. of humans. And if you don't believe that, you need to seriously reevaluate what's going on with where you're reading your news. <laughs> <laughs> yep, I think so. Uh, yeah, so, um, uh, oh yeah, I just wanted to mention as well, now is a good time for me because I've started my fieldwork again as part of my PhD and uh, I've caught four snakes this year. So we're out of winter now, and they did come out a little bit earlier than last year. Um, but yeah, caught four little baby snakes over the Easter weekend, little baby Escalapian snakes. Wonderful. So uh, I'm a very happy version of Tom at the moment. It's great. Although I'm not going out today because of the rain, but um, <laughs> nevertheless. Motivated, happy, ready to talk about frogs and climate. Yeah. All right. Shall I introduce the first paper then and just get going? Yeah. Uh, so this is a paper by Miller et al. I'm not going to read out every single author because there's about, what, 25 plus? There's loads. Um, and it's called Quantifying Climate Sensitivity and Climate-Driven Change in North American Amphibian Communities, uh, published in 2018 in Nature Communications. Pretty new and very apt. This is the one Richard sent us. And, uh, yeah, well, as we've already discussed... Um, I'm going to go back to calling it climate change because it's just natural to me. Uh, well, that's fine because, I mean, the point has been made. Yes. We don't want to labour it too hard. Um, so climate change is changing the distribution of species and therefore communities of animals are changing around the world in particular areas. So, um, yeah, essentially, if it gets either warmer or colder or it rains more or something changes to the environmental variables of a place it can become more or less habitable for animals, depending on their ability to tolerate conditions brought about by this change in the climate. So an example would be if a region gets hotter, the animals which already exist there but like it cool will start to disappear, either by dying or emigrating somewhere else. Um, but they could then be replaced by animals which like hotter temperatures or perhaps the ones which are already there but like it hot will proliferate more in response to it warming up. Um, so fundamentally what this paper is about is in the USA the climate's been changing it's affecting how many animals are born how many die and how many enter or leave an area and uh, this is kind of examining those trends during the period 1982 to 2012 in mm. amphibians yes and amphibians are quite a nice uh, way to study this because they tend to be slightly more sensitive to moisture levels and things like that. They're ec uh, ectothermic, 
so they're quite dependent on environmental temperatures and environmental conditions for uh, all sorts of things for breeding timing or, or pathogen transfer or later in this paper they mentioned uh, even their immune system is altered by uh, the environment that they're living in so a fantastic way to sort of measure the relative impacts of climate and the environment and these guys yeah. oh boy this paper the scope of this paper yeah it was quite incredible so um <coughs> so like i said it's based in the usa um but this study examines changes in the distributions of pretty much all the amphibians right tree frogs true frogs narrow mouth frogs toads spadefoot toads newts mole salamanders and lungless salamanders and uh, they didn't collect all the data on... Well, they were looking at sort of um, presence-absence over time in different places of yes. individual species. Uh, so whether they were there or not, and what was going on with the climate at that time. And um, they used patch occupancy models for that. And what they were doing was they basically looked at loads and loads of other studies and took all the data that other people had collected and doing amphibian surveys. So... It wasn't but, like all consistently the same type of survey. There was all different kinds of data, visual surveys, fish trap surveys where they'd caught the frogs in fish traps um, or, or salamanders. Uh, also surveys where they'd been listening out for calls. Um, but yeah, all the studies that they took data from had used repeated visits, which is really important when you're trying to work out your likelihood of actually finding a species if it is there. And so... Using all that data, they got reliable estimates for whether or not particular sites held particular animals at particular times. Yeah, and also important for predicting whether you visited a site, the animal is there, Enough. but you just yeah. failed to detect it. And that's yeah. also what's important about, okay, they use lots of different methods for detecting these species, but, I mean, you sort of said like it's a, a drawback from the paper, but when you're dealing with, was it 81 different species they were looking at? Or managed to look at from these uh, long-term data sets you'd need different ways of detecting these species because well some of them call some of them will call less frequently or, or it's not a very viable way of detecting that species i mean do salamanders call i don't think salamanders call so i mean that that's them completely out if you were doing uh calls across the country it would completely miss some species so it's a, a mixed method approach, but the, the point is that it's all consistent in the terms of, like you said, repeated, and then repeated multiple years, something like four visits per year to multiple sites within an area. And they had, was it 86 different study areas across the country? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, there's no point going out with a dictaphone and trying to record a frog, which is a mute. Um yeah, it makes perfect sense. And also, yeah, by, when you're aggregating data from other studies, you're kind of relying on the people who've studied those other individual animals to know the best way of surveying them, or at least to, to you know, have done good protocols so that they've yeah. got reasonable sort of estimates for whether or not they're there. Um, and it's not a big problem if suddenly one species is really easy to detect and one is very difficult to detect, because in this study they worked out the detectability per species per study location i believe certainly per species so those differences in uh, data collection methods were just sort of artifacts of the species they were studying so it didn't actually impact uh 
comparisons. No. And then so once they had these 80-odd species and whether or not they were in places at certain times, they looked at the relationship between them being there and them not being there and five different variables associated with climate. So they were winter severity, which is kind of how cold and miserable winters are, uh, the amount of snowfall, how much breeding water is available, which is obviously very important for amphibians, uh, how moist the summer soil was, and maximum temperature, so how hot it was getting in these places. Um, and yeah, they uh, they produced some really cool figures, but there wasn't there's not like a consistent message across the entire USA, is it? it very much the amphibian responses in many ways varied sort of regionally depending on well the climate in those particular regions really yeah that's, so that's the sort of tact they took they they all right we're going to investigate it per region in these sort of uh climactic zones i suppose or um uh, what do you call them Eco, uh biospheres Eco- t- bio, bio, biomes biomes that's the word isn't it biomes okay yeah, yeah. Uh, so what do we have? This is a sort of northeast forest, western dry areas, southeast forest, um, and a few others like Those western montane areas. Probably sounding familiar to people who know the USA well. <laughs> yeah, I mean it. It that's what's nice is there's sort of distinct biomes within the US, and each one sort of served as its uh, section. Yeah, but also on top of that, you've got to account for hey. These species are more related to these species, whereas they're less related to, I don't know, tree frogs or something else. So you've got to be looking at, okay, is it just that toads are very good or susceptible or not susceptible to climate changes? Or is it a tree frog thing, that they're the ones that are very sensitive or not? So it might not have anything to do with the biome they're in. It might be to do with their uh, relatedness to other vulnerable species. So you've got these two sort of lines of investigation. One is based on where they are and the climate they're used to dealing with, and the other is based on their sort of evolutionary uh, trajectory or, or lineage. Yeah. Yeah, basically the evolutionary weight, the momentum that's carrying these species forward. So what did they find? They, oh, I've got ecoregions written down here. They call them ecoregions, not biomes, whatever I was saying. Eco-region. I think I might have said eco-region or eco-type, but it's yeah. a new term to me, but I just know that you can, they're it, layers that you can download quite easily. It, yeah. I think it's because there's, there's a slightly sort of self-defined thing, perhaps. Yeah, so I, what think did they biome, I think biome's a bit more broad, like a biome would be like the tundra. Arctic, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. A bit coarse. That's my understanding, anyway. So... What they found was that really the phylogenetic pattern was much weaker than the one per ecoregion. So it did look like where these species were had a greater impact on how they would handle shifts in climate than whether they were related to other species or not. That makes sense to me because, um, yeah, it's a jungle out there. You know, you're on your own against the climate, really. Yeah, and if you you'd sort of expect if that was the case you would have you wouldn't have something like toads being spread across the country with different species of toads in different places you would expect toads limited to certain climactic areas right that you feel like there'd be something reflected in the distribution of these species if it was phylogenetic 
Yeah. And also, you'd think that someone else would have already clocked that there was like a much more dramatic decline in one particular group than others, whereas it seems to be pretty consistent. Mm. Yeah. So, I mean, we can look at these eco-regions and actually break down what areas are more vulnerable or not vulnerable and what's sort of connected to them. Uh, in the northeast forests, you tended to have higher soil moisture, tended to help with these frogs, and that's also higher water and breeding season helped in the northeast forests and the western dry areas. But what's important about doing this study in sort of a wide area is that the same uh, variables and changes, so higher water, actually in the southeast forests harmed amphibians. Yeah, it's too wet down there. Yeah, so you've got this contrasting, okay, if things are all going to be wetter, you'd expect, okay, great, frogs are going to be doing fine. But if you hadn't checked out the southeast forest, you'd be missing this slight subtlety where a different base climate completely changes the impact. Yeah, you would think, I mean, it must have to be a lot of water to be too much water for frogs and toads. <laughs> well, they were suggesting it was like big flooding events. Yeah. That would just push them out, wash them out, job done. And I suppose the timing of the flooding or timing of downpours might be a big deal. Because if you just like laid all your eggs in a little stream, expecting yeah. it to be quite calm and, you know, stable, then this massive flood comes in and all your little little frog eggs get washed out. Yeah, and think as well. A nightmare. If they're laying eggs in water bodies which are permanent and they're adapted to do that, when it floods, everything's going to be temporary for the time being. So anywhere they lay their eggs, it, I mean, they could actually en end up drying a, out by accident. Yeah, in a temporary pool and getting sort of... Yeah. Yeah, little ecological traps, I suppose. Gosh, yeah. can you imagine that, that type of conundrum for a frog? You think it's all sweet because everything's wet and then, you know, <laughs> your eggs end up drying out. <laughs> <laughs> well, there we go. Yeah. <laughs> like... If there was an animal which you'd think would enjoy Waterworld with Kevin Costner becoming a reality, okay, it was salt water. It was salt water, yeah, that's what I was going to get down. So maybe actually frogs, would that would be the worst thing for them. There's no saltwater frogs. No. The closest you get are, are cane toads that can sort of, and some other toads that can deal with, like, slightly Mate. salty water. I know you love cane toads, but they cannot swim in the sea, Ben. <laughs> Every no, toad has can... its limit. Yeah, but what I'm saying is they can take slightly saline water. It's just a matter yeah. of time until they adapt. They call yeah. them marine toad for a reason. They're on their way. <laughs> then they can't be stopped. Then it won't. Then they won't have to wait for humans to get in places. They'll just swim on over. Oh God! Then it will be toad oh. world. <coughs> toad world. That would actually still be a better film than Water World. I've never actually seen Water World. I've never. I've never bothered. <laughs> Yeah, I watched it when I was a little kid. And you know when you're really young, you're too young to understand that some films are really bad. Um, so I think I gave it, like, you know, my full attention for the duration of the film. And it's probably only many years later that I realised what I'd experienced was a bad film. I was probably, like, <laughs> six or seven when I watched it. I was really young. I'll give it a, I'll give it a miss then. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's just dark. I mean, I've not seen it again since, but, yeah. It's like dystopia done really badly i think okay i mean if it's a world without toads i mean who really wants to imagine that sort of place anyway i certainly don't yeah no um so you mentioned that um sometimes it was too wet for the frogs yep. one thing which was interesting that they picked out was that the bigger 
amphibians, uh, like the large frogs and the uh, nice large salamanders, they actually benefited the most from increases in soil moisture. Um, which makes sense because, I mean, big animals need to keep nice and moist. Uh, perhaps they're more prone to drying out. Well, I suppose I would have thought it would be the opposite. Be yeah, yeah, because of the surface area to volume ratio thing. Yeah, that's actually a fair point. I don't know why they need it. Maybe they, they like need it. more water just to get it into the core of them. I don't know. Or maybe yeah, they can. Weird. Maybe they need more water because they can't make use of smaller water patches. Maybe so. Yeah. Maybe they Maybe if there's a, a small puddle with a big frog. Yeah. It's um. It's not ideal. Yeah. Big frog lands in puddle and it just splashes all out and he's like, oh, it's going to leave me eggs there. <laughs> although, yeah, although breeding water availability was distinct from soil moisture in this. but That's true. Yes, that is true. Yeah, I'm not sure why that was. Should have thought about that before I said it, maybe. But, I mean, maybe no one knows. Maybe the answer isn't. I don't remember reading the answer in the paper. So, um, <laughs> what other things? Colder climates, um, you said that. Uh no, I didn't say anything about winter severity and snowfall. Oh, okay. So, uh, colder climates, um, particularly in mountainous sites and in the western regions, were more sensitive to changes in winter conditions. Um, warmer winters and more snow negatively affected amphibians. So, if it was cold and it, the winters get warmer and there's more snow, then uh, amphibians which are from cold places don't like that. So, that suggests that the cold winters have an important regulatory function in the life cycles of these amphibians. Um, yes, and I wonder if something like warmer winters... <coughs> I mean, it sounds a bit strange to have a warmer winter not helping frogs, right, and reducing uh, species richness. But I wonder if it's also something to do with winter like variability or something like that, where frogs are sort of caught out by warm patches in a yeah. slightly warmer winter yeah and also i mean imagine if you're supposed to be getting down to one degree and just completely going up shutting down if it's suddenly three degrees and you're alert and awake a bit more you're going to be yeah. spending that much more energy just being and if alive. there's not prey around at that time you might have a tough time maintaining that sort of metabolism yeah yeah we'll talk about that more in the next paper anyway we um but um what else we got? Oh yeah, so um, warmer temperatures were better for virtually all salamanders. So salamanders do tend to like it warmer. There were a couple of exceptions though, one of which is Gorinophilus porphyriticus, the spring salamander. Uh, another is the red salamander Pseudotriton ruba. And both of these are large-bodied stream-dwelling salamanders. And they're usually restricted to what they called in the paper headwater, which is like small tributaries going onto rivers with sort of narrow narrow streams and cold water and um it seems as though those habitats might be more sensitive to warming than others so those particular salamanders did prefer it to remain cooler but um they were the exception when it came to salamanders mm, i think that's also i think that's what's sort of the important message of this paper is say okay there's some sort of general trends in these different uh, eco regions and things like you know more water tends to help a lot more species but there is variability between these eco regions like hot places needing water more and things like that they benefit more in hot places because there's lack of it so the underlying climate of where these frogs were originally before the changes 
seems to be really, really important in exactly how intense uh, changes will have an, well, how intense the impacts will be on those places. There's this contingent, there's this, this momentum of the previous climate and what frogs are used to, or amphibians yeah. are used to, sorry. Mm. Yeah, so the authors estimated that the average rate of decline for all amphibian species, which was due to climate, so climate change as a whole is on all species of amphibian, generally reducing their populations by 0.14% every year. But 37%, so over a third of populations are actually expected to increase as a result of climate change. So while there obviously are some species which are being really savagely affected, there are also species which are kind of benefiting if you only look at climate change in isolation. However, 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 yes, uh, declines in amphibians are actually way more dramatic than would be caused by just climate change. So the average is less like minus 3.4 percent so they're going down 3.4 percent in population every year which is far far greater than the 0.14 percent which would be caused by standalone climate change so yeah yeah, and when you add to that so there are other there's other factors at play essentially but what they also noticed was there was a match between the areas which had the worst declines in amphibians and the areas which had the most uh, change in the climate yeah most sensitive to climate right that's right yeah so while climate change in of itself isn't actually causing dramatic declines it seems as though it's an exacerbator so if there's amphibians already declining due to other things be it maybe um, habitat destruction land use change disease or pollution which you alluded to earlier on with disease um, climate change will actually exacerbate those issues because it's just another way that life is just getting that little bit more difficult and um when you start topping, you know, putting these issues on top of each other, it's a lot for these little, you know, it's a lot for these little amphibians to deal with. Yeah, because it might not be a combination, but something that's prompted by climate change or something that's that's using it or increasing <coughs> the chances. There's always the uh, chat of pathogens being spread better, easier and lasting longer in an environment uh, as climates have warmed and become more moist. So right there is you can absolutely sort of put the blame on climate change. That's a sort of starting factor for something like that. Yes, yeah. it can't do it all alone, but the pathogen might not be a problem without it. Yeah. So it's, it yeah. Is, seems to be, well, it could very well be a required aspect of these amphibian declines, even if by itself it isn't very much. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that kind of leaves the overall message of this paper as, um climate change in of itself isn't actually that bad but it's kind of this insidious um assistant to other issues for amphibians which you know when thought about in conjunction can actually be pretty damaging um but yeah i think the fact that it in of itself isn't as bad as it could be is also cause for some optimism because um you know the fact is that the climate is changing quite dramatically and um, that in of itself won't accelerate amphibian declines, you know, that much. But then, you know, you've got the caveat that it might be doing other stuff, which is a little bit more difficult to understand. Yes. That, um, is still negative. always trickier. Yeah. 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 So I, I think, think cautious, cautious optimism is probably not a bad thing, but um, yeah. I... <sighs> 
yeah, it, it feels like if we solved a lot of other issues, then yes, we can help buffer frogs against declines. But things like pathogens, that's going to be pretty tricky, and you'll need to be tackling the underlying climate stuff there anyway. Yeah. Um, the other bit that might partially explain the mismatch between the climate and the declines is they were saying towards the end that they could only do uh, linear relationships between the climate variables and the uh, frog occupancy. And I wonder if that's where some of the mismatch is coming wow. from, because if you think of having a, a sort of threshold or a sort of point like a critical mass of, I don't know, heat or moisture or something like that, or lack of moisture. And after that level, frogs just cannot sustain themselves. Instead of mm. being a slight incremental decrease as that variable disappears or, or reduces, you could reach a cliff or a threshold of zero amphibians. In some, you know, in sort of small populations or, or small areas or very vulnerable study sites, you could see how just hitting a certain threshold completely removes population viability and it just drops off a cliff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So and the models they use could be removing some of the nuance in their findings. Potentially, and you've got to be a little bit wary of that with amphibians because they naturally have, or population levels or populations of amphibians do tend to be quite variable just naturally. So perhaps there are sort of perturbations from one year to the next that if you do just hit one year get unlucky and it's a a naturally low population for amphibians yeah. paired with a just over the threshold sort of change in, in moisture or temperature or something mm. then that might sort of explain these chunkier declines in certain places I think that's a really good point yeah yeah there's only a narrow difference between a wax and wane and a success and extinction it can be, if, yeah. Especially if yeah. everything's sort of steady, steadily declining. You can only push yeah. things so far until there might be a... You know, you're running the risk of a critical sort of failure, I guess. I mean, do you remember when we talked about those little bromeliad frogs up on the um, mountains in Brazil, was it? Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, I think so. Yeah, like those would have years where there were like virtually no frogs to be found. And it's like right. you say, if... If, you know, if the population is reducing that dramatically, naturally, as it waxes and wanes, yeah, a slight change to the climate. If, you know, if your population is only being temporarily represented by a few tens of individuals, whatever it might be, yeah, and then they all dry out, that's it, game over. Yeah, and then yeah. there you go, there's your there's your jump from a 0.14% to a, I don't know, 3% something. You yeah. lose these little populations. Yeah. But... That, that's what makes something like what makes that paper so interesting is it's done on such a wide scale and it's pulling out these very interesting trends of okay this is the sort of variables that could be causing uh declines or increases or buffering against uh overall declines but at the end of the day there there's so much going on on the very individual population level that it, you need to connect all these different scales up to get a full picture of what's actually occurring that's well beyond the scope of that paper because it was a, a regional a regional thing did a very good job at uh, accounting for all these sort of different detectability and different site variables and all sorts of stuff did a superb job yeah 
but you do really need that fine scale data as well to get the full story. Hmm. And that's that's one of the difficulties of studying ecology is trying to tie all these little different aspects together. Yeah, because there's, there's the... a top up and bottom down, or the other way, vice versa, top down and bottom up sort of effects. Yeah, that can but, be in but the middle. Also, as you kind of um, get increased levels of specificity, like it becomes more and more difficult to communicate what you found in a coherent way that yes. people have got time to comprehend. Because even this paper has a lot going on. Um, Huge amounts. the different yeah. regions. Yeah, and you know, they've got some fantastic figures which kind of use a traffic light system to show you how each variable is affecting each region. Yeah, um, some, of the, you know, some of the traffic light, I mean, it's not very colorblind friendly, is it? It's not colorblind friendly, and that is obviously a bugbear. But nevertheless, I mean, um, the fact is that well, I mean, I'm not colorblind, and I thought, well, that's really great. Like, it does make it at a glance quite simple. Yeah, okay, fair. Yes. They should have they should have used like, I don't know what colors are good for colorblind people. I can't remember, but um, yeah, certainly red and green or orange and green, not ideal. <laughs> um, <laughs> why it is that whoever you know, whoever it was that invented who traffic lights, selfish. So, um, <laughs> but um, yeah, the, the fact remains that um, as a principle, okay, their color palette wasn't ideal, but <laughs> as a principle, I'm sorry to have brought it up, but yes, yes, yeah. no, I mean, they, they do I a good it, job of summarizing should... this complicated situation into yeah. coherent figures that do show the trends. Yeah, but those goddamn colors. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, yeah, it is a bugbear, and I mean, I mean, to be honest, I don't always think of it because I'm not colorblind. But um, yeah, it's frustrating, and like you know, it's not hard. They did a reasonably well. They did a very good job of uh, making a complicated thing quite coherent. But again, communicating that to another layer. I mean, it's taken us half an hour, forty minutes to talk about the paper in any kind of depth. Um, so yeah, these are complicated. But it should. It, it should, should take yeah. half an hour to understand an entire region's worth of, of frog sensitivity to climate. I mean, we haven't dig, dug into the absolute minutia of it because it's done on a species by species level. They've got a breakdown at the end, which looks at it very specifically on a species by species level. So, I mean, there's even more detail there. That's what's mm. so cool. So if you think, all right, management perspective, all of a sudden, what are you going to conserve? OK, I'm, I'm in charge of conserving this species and looking after it in this site bam, there's a species, okay, it's going to be more vulnerable to these sorts of things, okay, standing water bodies is a big deal, we'll make sure that those are well protected and, you know, given a bit of space. Yeah, or... It, it can just... be teased out of it, that's what's so cool. Hmm. Or if you only care about one frog and, you, you know, to hell with the others, you can really make sure that you focus on that one and potentially you could make it to the detriment of the others. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to... This frog is not very sens <coughs> sensitive to high temperatures, so we're just going to put out a bunch of like convection heaters out into the <laughs> out into the swamp, <laughs> cook those other competitor frogs right off the and, trees. And by using all that energy to heat all those surface heaters, you'll also be contributing to climate change as a whole, which will double down on your efforts. So that'd be good. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. Right. Should we? move on to the second paper about a little bit more specifically about one species and its hibernation yeah that's why i quite like the sort of pairing of the papers here we've got nice broad scale stuff now we're bringing it in specific yeah. one species what's happening during this one time of year Alrighty. 
what it speaks so, to. So this paper is by... Oh, I'm going to butcher some of these, sorry. So, Uvajis, Ma, Sedekenyai, Bokani, Hoy, and Hetier... 2016, Experimental Evidence for Beneficial Effects of Projected Climate Change on Hibernating Amphibians. And this one was published in Scientific Reports. Mm. So we've just discussed that climate change or climate catastrophe or climate crisis, if you will, has been identified as a cause of amphibian decline. Um, that's, you know, that's, that's a fact. However, um, it's not necessarily been studied in great detail what effects... Uh, predicted milder, shorter winters are going to have on the hibernation success of certain amphibians. For example, the temperate zone, Bufo Bufo. Bufo Bufo. The common yeah. toad. Which uh, I actually saw a common toad yesterday. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. Me and Dev were, uh, Dev's a master student who works on the Escalapian snakes. We were scrabbling around in some grass, uh, like a big pile of cut grass looking for snakes and we turned up a toad which is pretty cool um they're just big warty friendly characters amazing eyes yep. mesmerizing eyes um, beautiful eyes. So yeah, nice to see said hello to the toad for a minute went, went in its little hole <laughs> <laughs> as they do yeah as it's so their funny. life i loved seeing them moving so through good. sort of like dense undergrowth because it's almost like they're swimming they're just like Plodding doing this along. little yeah, they're funny. Um, so that was nice. So yeah, that kind of inspired me having just read this paper. I was like, well, mate, I know exactly how you're going to do in uh, temperate in your temperate environment when the climate <laughs> begins to warm and your hibernation period shortened and warmer. <laughs> That's what I thought when I saw the toad. <laughs> carry on, carry on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, carry on, mate. You're in for a treat, bro. <laughs> um, yeah, so... Essentially, the authors of this paper Put went frogs out... frogs in fridges. Put toads yeah, in well, fridges. Yeah, they did, yeah. So they went out, they collected a bunch of baby... Uh, well, they collected a bunch of toad eggs, raised them up in the laboratory, and then um, exposed them to different kinds of hibernation, which were mimicking climate change or sort of current temperatures. So they had four treatments, one of yes. which... Four treatments... Yeah, so they had two temperatures and yes, two hibernation treatments. lengths. Yes. So the really unlucky toads, they got a hibernation temperature of 1.5 degrees, which is about what it should be now, um, just above freezing. That's the whole point of these toads going underground and trying to, when they hibernate, they're really just trying to stop themselves from freezing because they can't survive very long. They can survive, they said, 22 hours at minus three degrees. 22 hours, yeah, from that... Uh... Voitron and Lengage 2008 paper. I bet that um, was a fun experiment. <laughs> yeah, it was interesting because it, it wasn't that <coughs> it didn't harm their fitness as such. It more harmed how good they were at breeding um, their breeding success in the subsequent year. So it um. wasn't like a straight okay, a bunch of Toads got frozen and they died. Um, it was okay. They've had a tough time. How are they doing next year? Okay, they're not actually performing as well as they should. That's having knock-on effects, presumably knock-on effects at a population level. So it was an interesting Ooh. little, like, not quite as straightforward as you think, basically. Cool. 
That's cool. Um, so back back to this paper, they had four treatments. One's 1.5 degrees uh, and a long hibernation period, which was how many days? 91 days. 91 days. And then they had a 4.5 degree, so that was simulated warming and the same length. And then they also had a shorter one. So one lot had the 1.5 degrees. And how many days was the shorter one? 61 days. 61 days. Significantly shorter. And then similarly, they had a warm treatment where it's 4.5 degrees for 61 days. So they were either short hibernation, cold, short hibernation, warm, long hibernation, cold, long hibernation, warm. Yeah. And I think it's fair to say the ones that had the shortest, warmest hibernation were the ones that got the best deal. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, they they had over 90%. I mean, obviously, any time a species is hibernating, it does kind of tend to separate the wheat from the chaff, right? They're not all going to survive. They're not all going to make it through because it's extremely, extremely difficult period. If you can imagine going underground for months on end and just sitting there, getting cold, using up your energy reserves, it's inevitable that some are going to die. So even in that treatment... Which, well, should we talk about the results? I think it's probably... Yeah, I would go straight on to the results because yeah. I think there's there's not much in terms of uh, methodological no. chat. I mean, they just had toads and they made them cold. Yeah, they put them in little test tubes with some sand and then they just hunkered down. Um, so yeah, the ones with the short, warm hibernation, over 90% survived. Um, and also, I mean, the ones with the long, warm hibernation also did very well. Uh, it's like 85% survived which was pretty similar to the short but cold hibernation. So they mostly, they you know, they had over 80% survival as well. The one which really did them wrong was the long cold one, which mm. just over 60% survived. So, um, yeah, essentially either a shortening of the winter or a warming of the winter are going to be beneficial to these toads as they hibernate. Yes. Yes, that was the sort of general takeaway from the paper that even things like body mass loss wasn't a big deal when it was a shorter uh, winter, but it was only really when the winters were longer that you know even their body mass started taking hits. So then you'd expect knock-on effects in the subsequent year of having lower fitness just because even the ones that survived are going to be having a tougher time. Yeah. Um, As you mentioned earlier on. Yeah. 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 I mean, pretty straightforward, the way they sort of present it, thinking, okay, toads are going to benefit from warmer, shorter winters. Whether that actually translates into greater success because of the way the climate's changing, I'm not so sure about. Yeah, because there's going to be other things during the period where they're not asleep that have changed as well, right? Right. So what if warmer temperatures also increases likelihood of you got toad eating invertebrates or something like that hanging around for longer periods of time or what i think is actually very important they do talk about and they say that variability during the winter is not a big not a big deal because actually the the warming of winters is coming from an increase in lower uh lower winter temperatures and the means staying relatively consistent so there's actually a reduction in variability for winter temperatures in the temperate zone. I wonder whether, well, I wonder 
whether that's actually consistent across the entire temperate zone, for one thing. Because I, I think back to sort of UK situations where occasionally we've had like a warm February or something like that. But later on, there's been a very hard frost and a drop to negative temperatures for maybe a week. And I wonder how toads and amphibians will do. Okay, they've got a shorter winter, but can they deal with like a little mini winter afterwards when they've all woken up and gotten back out? Is that going to sort of throw breeding times off and then suddenly they get hit hard? Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's that's where I think perhaps their, their discussion is a little bit brushing over how variability could play into um the actual population yeah. of, of toads in these places no i think that's a really good point it's all good and well waking up in february to exploit a mini easter heat wave but if you don't have the behavioral plasticity to know to go back to bed afterwards you're toast right i mean out of all species i'd put toads up there as very likely to be able to adapt yeah um but I don't think it's a done deal in terms of, hey, look, they're going to benefit. They're going to be fine. Saying that, I mean, saying that, they are experiencing horrendous declines in the UK. Right. But how much of is that from habitat loss or road mortality? Or... There are so yeah. many factors but in the road playing mortality, into this. See, road mortality is one I could see being synergistically linked with climate change because, um, you know, if... I don't know, for example, if they're migrating to their vernal pools or whatever, and then the weather changes, I don't know, they could be caught out, something like mm. that. That you know, yeah. Yeah. Not the most uh, succinct of an idea, but you know what I mean. It could, yes. Uh, they could yes. work as a team. That's what's sort of quite nice going down into this sort of lower scale, looking at one species, then you can look at the little species uh, quirks. Okay, mm. toads do better with these sort of things. They only need ephemeral pools to, to breed in for some species. So actually, maybe they're going to be <coughs> less sensitive to things like reduced rainfall or whatever because they only need a little bit and there's short breeding time and they produce lots of offspring. You know, it, it's it's all gets complicated very quickly. Mm. But I do feel at least this is some sort of positive no, positive note on toads hibernating the chances are they're going to be benefiting from the warmer shorter winters yeah let's hope they can exploit that benefit and capitalize on it yeah because damn as we said before a world without toads it's a very very dark world i'm just gonna say it right so in the uk we only have one well no we've got two toads we've got two toads yeah and we've got a frog and an introduced frog no, actually, we've got two frogs. No, we've got two we? frogs. Cool. Yeah, yeah, cool frogs are properly native. Cool I frogs think. are, yeah. But uh, you know, for the for, to all most intents and purposes, uh, people will only really come across the one frog, the common frog, and the common toad, right? Yes. I think the toad is better than the frog. You're gonna get no arguments in this corner. <laughs> I would push the toad as the best amphibian in the UK. Oh, oh, I didn't, I don't know, I, I don't know. Uh, I recently saw some great crested news. And I they know, are I know they're good, unreal. but the, the, the beauty of the toad is he's not picky. He's everywhere. You know, he's yeah. a bit more versatile. He'll show his little face. 
And it is funny the places you find them as well. They yeah. do seem, you know, you see a little gutter on the floor and you look inside it and Toad's calling it home. It's really funny. It's like, oh, you like to live in a little pipe, do you, mate? <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> see, they, yeah. <laughs> they got real charm. Yeah, they do. Yeah, they do. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Okay, I I don't know. It's a it's a t- it's a close one for me, but um, an entirely unnecessary question to be answered. <laughs> no, I think it's really important to have a very clear idea of what's your favorite amphibian for when you get asked. <laughs> Especially if you're hanging out with children, mate. That question is going to come up. Yeah. You got to have amphibian. You know, you got to know your favorite reptiles one to five as well. One to five. One to five, yeah. Damn, one to, I, five. I need one to, to five to be uh, on the safe side. One to three in a pinch, but one to five is good to have one. <laughs> They'll know if you're bluffing. Guarantee, like, a lot of people right now are just thinking about what their top fives are. <laughs> good. Write them down. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> don't forget them. Yeah. You don't want to get caught out, I'm telling you. Um, cool. So, yeah, I mean, we've looked a little bit there then at... Um, you know, the USA and how amphibians there have responded to change in climate and what might happen uh, as the climate continues to change. And then we've looked at just one, our uh, our very own native species of toad and how warmer winters might affect their ability to hibernate and survive, which looks positive, but as we've said, may not be entirely positive uh, given well, the fullness of time. Yes, you never know what else is. I mean, the, the fact is that they are declining, so it's there are issues out there it's just maybe maybe with the warm winters we can not worry as much about that aspect but toads so should we move on to our species of the bye week yeah let's do it okay so we have a paper by Goot Reyes uh, Velasco and Bolsinger. 2019 paper, A New Species of Puddle Frog from an Unexplored Mountain in Southwestern Ethiopia. Uh, published Yay. in Zoo Keys, as so many taxonomical descriptions are. We always hit up Zoo Keys because the format's great and people seem to like publishing in it when they have a new species. Yep. It's nice keeping all the new species in one place, to be fair. It makes it easier to uh, keep track of, I guess. Yeah. Other taxonomic-based journals are available, though. They are. I mean, you can, it seems like you can actually sort of publish in any way you're damn well pleased. Um, yeah. I wonder now what um, geneticists, not geneticists, but what taxonomists will think about this paper because they only looked at one gene. I want to get that in early. They only looked at one gene. What does that mean? Is it a good, is it a good new species? I don't know. Can that be? I... I don't know, you're rolling the dice, aren't you? Yeah, you are. It's that's, a mitochondrial it one. it comes down to. But, I mean, it's already a rich gen- uh, genera. 91 previously described species with multiple undescribed species, they say. So the chances are pretty good that it's something fresh and new. Whether the delineation's spot on, who knows? Yeah. But Ooh. it looks to be a very charming frog. It seems to be differentiated morphologically as well as via the mitochondrial so oh it's morphologically different it must be a new species spare me ben (laughs) (laughs) uh i Um, i'm gonna by the time 
I don't know when, but soon I'm going to really understand what is and isn't a good species limitation. Are you? Maybe it's just an impossible nebulous concept that I'll never understand and no one can ever truly understand. (sighs) Yeah. I think that there's some problems with just splitting stuff anyway because you're dealing with that whole species definition problem and that alone is enough to cause headaches. Yeah. Uh... Yeah. And you've got to do with deal with heated Bayesian analysis chains apparently (laughs) Um, anyway I think we'll talk about this frog so the The Ethiopian highlands of Ethiopia yeah yeah, we're in Ethiopia Um, the highlands of Ethiopia are a hotbed of endemism half of all the frogs and toads in Ethiopia are endemic and there are five endemic genera found nowhere else so I like this paper because the authors were actually out in Ethiopia on a plateau called Bibitar or Bibita in the southwest of the country, and they happened across a brand new species of frog. I always like also want to get sorry before you go on the mountains' <coughs> alternative names. Oh yeah, go on. Yeah, the donkey ears. <laughs> yeah, donkey ears in uh, or it translates to donkey ears from the local language, which I think is brilliant. What a wonderful yeah. name for a pair. Of, well, presumably some a pair of mountains. Oh, unless it's because they're. You can see that they look sort of donkey-eared from above, but that seems unlikely. What does a don- do a donkey's ears have specific features that other ears don't? Well, I think the primary the sort of primary feature of donkey's ears is they're attached to a donkey's head. They're pretty pointy. They're sticky uppy. Yeah. I don't understand. I'm trying to picture a plateau that looks like that, and I can't. <laughs> just completely stumped when you google Bibitar Ethiopia all that comes up is the images from this paper oh well if you look oh. at if you look at the figure and there's a like a a view of the entirety of Ethiopia yeah. and the overall plateau I can see how that looks like a pair of ears oh what from from the map but, but it seems unlikely that that's where the name came from because I presume that the name is much older than our ability to see things from orbit. Yeah. Wow. Matt, you might be right, though. Wow. Okay. Insight. I like that. Anyway, (laughs) um, (laughs) the authors were actually out in Pipitar and they found the new species, which I like. I like it when they actually, like, you know, literally spot something and think, oh, that's new. So, um, yeah, well, it, they were just... that's something that we forget to mention a lot of time. We say new species because <coughs> it's a useful shortcut for saying newly described species. Yeah. But really, it's I mean, the species has been around and I'm sure people have known about it for a very long time. It's just not been formally described in this format here. Yeah. Which, of course, like yeah. so many of the species which we talk about have uh, a, a scientific name where the species epithet is derived from the name for that animal in the local language like of course humans have seen this frog before but it's just the first time someone's taken the time to you know actually formally categorize it and uh write a paper about it essentially right yeah that's that's all we're really getting at when we say new species but i think it's it bears mentioning every now and again yeah that it isn't like whoa this new species come out of nowhere and these are the first people to see it 
because no. the chances are they ain't. And no, they're definitely. I'm sure not. it's had a, a common local name for a long time and things like that. Yeah, but I have to say, the habitat shots look dreamy. What yeah. a place! Just this incredible, like dense undergrowth, nice forest. All these frogs were found in one pond, which was. Described as heavily overgrown. I don't think a forest can be overgrown. I yeah, probably... I, I thought that was an odd use of that word too. I think yeah. that's just forest. But yeah. then, unless it <laughs> oh, means this is stuff a... is... Give that a trip. <laughs> literally overgrowing the pond so it's surrounded and not open to the sky. Sort of overgrown. Ah. Not overgrown is like, oh, yeah, needs a trim. You just took that word to another plane. Yeah. Fair More go, meanings. <laughs> uh, so yeah the area was categorised by having loads of epiphytic plants dense undergrowth and they found these frogs and their eggs on leaves overhanging the water one male was actually in having a little dip um, you could see the eggs inside the female's bodies uh, what's the name of this species we, you said the uh, you didn't actually say the genus so it's, I named said it. nothing so they've named it Phrynobatrachus bibitar Mm. Obviously, because of the mountains. After the mountains. They named it after the mountains, which is just perfect. It's exactly what you need. Because you're in the Bibitar and you think, what's that Phrynobatrachus over there? <laughs> it's probably Phrynobatrachus <laughs> Bibitar, you know what I'm saying? It makes sense. It's not, yeah. Yeah, it's not hard. I, I'm, I'm willing to bet that it's not the only uh, frog. And if it's. Oh, I don't know. Who knows no, what they else found is it with loads of other. They found it. There was other frogs. There was many other frogs in the actual area where they found this one. Yeah. Um, and there's probably more new species to be described. They do say that in the paper, don't they? That this is like a largely unexplored area. And that there's probably, you know, they went there just for a little bit. They were only there for a day. <laughs> they found a new species. <laughs> they weren't even trying. So, um, <laughs> yeah, there's probably many more. Mm. Uh, yeah, so one thing... One thing I thought was interesting. Oh yeah, go on. How small are they? Let's get let's get an image in people's heads. Sixteen to twenty-two millimeters. Females being the larger ones. So that's pretty, pretty tiny, small. Yeah. And what do they look like? They're cool. They're this sort of lovely burnt orange. You got some nice sort of light chevron pattern on the back and top of the head. Females are slightly greenier with the orange. Uh, they've got paler bellies. They're lovely. Pointy faces. Nice bit of dark eye shadow there. Yeah. Yeah. Good looking Quite long frogs. of limb. Quite long of limb. Look like good jumpers. Yep. As as frogs tend to be. Yeah. Um, There's a nice picture of some sitting on some leaves. <coughs> yeah. Um, one thing which is cool about this species. Is there a common name, by the way? Yes. Uh, the suggested English common name is the Bibitar Mountain Dwarf Puddle Frog. Oh, too many words. Too many words. We could have done one less word. Oh, uh, yeah. The BMDPF. <laughs> I think they should have just called it... They don't need to put mountain in there, in my opinion. They should have just called it Bibitar Puddle Frog. What Although if there's they... probably others. Yeah, what if there is a Bibitar Puddle Frog already? Dwarf Puddle And it's the size of a... You know, small cat. Is there a word which is kind of a mixture of dwarf and puddle? Uh, puddlet. Ah, uh, there we go. Puddling. The bibitar puddlet frog. Or how about bibit? How about bibitar puddle froglet? Oh, 
Yes. Although froglet is actually a life stage in amphibians. Okay. Frogling. Oh. Hello. <laughs> the, the pivotar the the pivotar podlet frogling. <laughs> well, podlet frogling. Now, now you've got now it's really. There's a redundancy small. there. There's a redundancy there. Okay. The the pivotar the pivotar puddle froglet. There you go. <laughs> no, you said Froglet was out because of its. Ah, oh, sorry. Name. The Bibitar. The Bibi- I'm, mate, I haven't had much sleep. The Bibitar Puddle Frogling. There you go. Yes. Okay. So, yeah. Maybe that's a better common name. Regardless. It probably um, isn't. <laughs> no, it's definitely not. Uh, we're in over our heads. So, uh, one thing which I thought was really cool about this, which they're not sure about, um, but it is possible that the females of this. Um, Bibitar puddle frogling are actually guarding their egg clutches in a similar manner as another species called uh, Phrynobatrachus andersoni, which actually at night they stand by their eggs and they kind of watch over them. They, they don't leave them and they guard the them. Glass frogs, by any chance? I'm thinking of that wonderful ah. scene in whatever amber documentary it is, where there's there's those wasps descending on this frog's nests, the egg nests, eggs. And uh, the frog is just booting them away. Yeah, no, I'm not sure. Um, I don't think so. I think in the discussion, nah, it's a different frog. Phrynobatrachus andersoni is a chunky brown thing. It's definitely not see-through. Oh, sorry, I didn't catch that the genus was the same. Oh, uh, yeah. Oh, well, I, sp- I can only imagine that they combat uh, things going for the eggs in a similar fashion to the glass frog. I mean, frogs have only got so many tools at their disposal, haven't they? Yeah, apart from those ones that headbutt their enemies. Hmm, or those ones with the spines that come out from yeah. the skin. Yeah, they shoot their bones out or whatever. They've got the tongue as well. The tongue's a sort of undercover thing. It's quite sneaky. Lots of people, I think, don't realise that frogs have that tongue. It can do some damage. <laughs> Would it do damage? <laughs> Just get you stuck to something. Yeah. Oh. Um... What was the other thing? Oh, yeah. So um, if you're wondering, is that a Phrynobotrachus bibitar or is it a Phrynobotrachus natalensis? And um, you're not sure. One thing to check is the elongate fingers. So uh, bibitar is the piano player of the genus. They've got very long, thin fingers and um, apparently a slenderer head. But I didn't realize slenderer was a word. I would have said more slender head. Slenderer. Slimmer? Slimmer, yeah. Slenderer. It's weird. Apparently it is a word though, I googled it. Well, there you go, there's your word of the week. Slenderer. Slenderer. Try and use it in a sentence. um, hmm, Okay. Um, One snake was quite thick, the other one was slenderer. I mean, I think that could have worked just fine with the word slender, but okay. Yeah, okay, how about, wow, that snake's pencil thin. But unbelievably, the one next to it is slenderer. <laughs> <laughs> Incredible. Incredible. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Cheers, mate. Um, kept it relevant as well. So, yeah, brand new species, Phrynobotrachus bibitar. Um, great, great, really good paper. Impressive, actually. Um, and unlike many of the papers that we do for this segment, they actually had a lot about the natural history of this species. So even in, you know, they were only there a very short time, they were managing to observe quite a lot. And um, I think that's really good for yeah. 
you know, in stark contrast, like you say, to many we read, they did really well on that. Um, and I enjoyed this a lot. Well, it really helps you kind of contextualise the species and it just makes it feel a little bit more relevant when you know a little bit about their behaviours. And, you know, they only observed them for a day or two or whatever it was. But, um, you know, they actually managed to get quite a lot suggesting, you know, they, they've put some leads to other behaviours like nest attendance, which are worth future people investigating. So, yeah, definitely yeah. sets the scene. It does. It, it prompt. It gets people's minds working with. Okay, what else would be cool to find out about this species? So, yeah, I like that stuff. Yeah. And what's also worth mentioning is it doesn't. They didn't give any explicit IUCN recommendation in terms of vulnerability level. But there was some nice stuff about how it seems like the forest that they're in is very low disturbance. Um, and areas sort of at this level of altitude don't see much foot traffic or anything like that likely to be unsuitable for big agriculture that's occurred at lower levels so it doesn't appear to be in a massive sort of problem area no yeah the Um, only thing people go into the forest for is to harvest honey which is presumably pretty uninvasive yeah and relatively sustainable you'd imagine so that's sort of a nice little a little bonus there. Um, whether it's quite limited in range, it's probably endemic, so probably like limited range, so it probably bumps up the its chances of being threatened somewhere along those lines. But it's nice when you don't have those immediate threats bearing down on a newly described species. Yeah. Ah, <laughs> oh, what a nice note to end on. Um, <laughs> cool. Yeah. So there we go. Yeah. Phryno Batrachus bibita. Bibita. Um, it would have been fun if yeah. they called it the, the donkey-eared frog or something like that. Yeah, but then it would be even more confusing because why is the mountain named after a donkey's ears? We can't work that out. If you then find out the frog's named a donkey ears, you've just got another layer of separation. You're going to lose any grip on reality that you once had. It's fragile as it is. You're not wrong. Mm. You're not wrong. So, uh, yeah. Any other business? I've got lots of other business. Well, that's perfect because I have no business. Okay, yeah. So we've got a new patron called Ross McGibbon. So thank you very much to Ross. Big up. Uh, I shared, he's he's an incredible photographer. I shared um, one of his images on our Facebook page. Python or whatever you call it? Woma Python, yeah. Yeah. What did I say? Womba. You said Womba, which... <laughs> what the heck? It's like a womble, but in snake form. <laughs> oh, that'd be amazing. Imagine a snake that just travelled around eating garbage. They'd be, they'd be held as heroes. They would be... It's like a, it's like a better Roomba. It's absurd. Um, but yeah, so thank you very much, Ross, for being our patron, and check him out mm, on, um, on Facebook. Uh, really cool shots of um, Australian wildlife and their kind of relevant habitat as well which is what's quite nice it helps you to kind of imagine them out there which is cool um what else oh yeah so uh steve elaine is working on a crowdfunder uh he's trying to work oh, out yes. yeah he's trying to work out um we've got an introduced species of toad which is very relevant to this episode extremely pertinent actually uh called the midwife toad which has come over from europe but um He's worked out already where the Cambridge toads, which I think formed the 
a large part of his previous investigations. He's found yes. out they come from Spain, which was a surprise. Everyone thought they were from France. So now he's looking at the other populations and he wants to do some sequencing and work out where they're from. But he needs a bit of money to do it. So if you've got a few quid to uh, help Steve out with a project, um, it would be really cool. And you'd be contributing to some actual science. And there's a good chance that he's going to be overturning the kind of popular held belief about where these frogs originate from. So it's pretty cool. Um, mm. So I'll put the link to that in the uh, show notes if you want to go have a look, have a read and consider donating. Excellent. Yeah, I'd completely... Yeah, no, I'm glad you remembered that because I'd seen it, but... <laughs> yeah, it's all good. So uh, in the last episode, we were also talking... Was it the last one? Iguana's Rock. Yes. So we were talking yes. about um, the conservation relevance of having these subspecies of rock iguanas um, because, yeah. you know, while... While on paper and genetically they might not necessarily be um, species in many people's eyes, because they're morphologically different, they have different behaviours and they live in different places, um, they're kind of sort of conservation relevant. So um, Scott Iper sent us a message about this, this idea of ESUs, which is evolutionary significant units. Yes. Um, and he mentioned that this has been done for pseudophryny Pen, pengilei, pengilei. What the hell, pengilei, pengilei, pengilei. What on earth? Who puts a double L next to E Y I? Pseudophryni, pengileia, pengileia. See, that might be one that's come from a different language or something. So actually, pengilei. the pronunciation pengilei. is pengilei. not even close. Pengiliae, the pronunciation to that is next to impossible. Anyway, there's a paper by Morgan et al. in 2008 in Molecular Ecology where they talk about this species and um, a sister species as well, where although it's only one species, there's actually separate populations um, based on a level of genetic distinctiveness. And because they're allopatric, it's worth uh, managing them separately and they should be conserved as separate biological units because they have evolved separately. So there is a, um, a precedent for doing this elsewhere um, in an Australian yes. frog. I think at the end of the day, it comes down to a case-by-case case sort of thing. It can't, it can't just be justified, all right, bam, separate species, not separate species, forget it, you go one way or another. It needs a bit of nuance and a bit of uh, like actual on-ground knowledge for these sort of things and if you've got the genetic stuff backing it up even even better yeah yeah uh what else we got so in the last episode for some reason was it the last episode i think it might have been for some reason at some point i was talking about cookie cut sharks and wondering if there was a better name for them than ectoparasite um robin Ooh. on twitter got in touch and suggested that they've been called micro predators so they're just taking little nibbles out micro which... predator yeah, that works as well. It's another alternative. I like that. It does. Um, it does make me think of tiny <coughs> predators, though. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, it's got to be in context for sure. Yeah, because um, like a, a macro herbivore, you'd think of an elephant, wouldn't you? But then I suppose macro- they're eating big thing, big plant stuff anyway. So I suppose maybe it works both ways. Because you're not going to get a big thing eating tiny. St- well, maybe you would. Ant eaters eat ants, and they're quite baleen. Baleen whales eat krill. I mean, they're yeah. Mm. Wouldn't necessarily think of them as a micro predator, though. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I, uh, I think yeah, the that's predator's just... okay. I'm putting that in the yeah. okay pile. 
Yeah, okay. Well, yeah, fair fair to middling. Um, but thank you, Robin. So, yeah, um, you. mate, we've got some more um, soft-shell turtle news. Oh, so, brilliant. Tell me it's good yeah, news. So, yeah, so a couple of weeks ago, we had... We talked about soft-shell turtles, and another person has got in touch with us. Uh, Jack Carney got in touch on Twitter, who is the Program Development Officer for the Asian Turtle Program. Ooh. You know, they're doing lots of stuff, but a lot of it revolves around how soft the turtles actually are. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't think you're telling the truth there. I think, uh, I think they're probably doing more valuable work. <laughs> look at how soft a soft shell turtle is. <laughs> nah, like I that I jest, but Jack is like a proper proper conservationist. Works at the Turtle Conservation Center in Kuk Phong, Vietnam, and um, yeah, has held numerous soft shell turtles. And apparently, they are very soft. Some listen to this are much like soft baby skin covered over the bony shell parts. I mean, that sounds just really nice, real soft. Yeah, unless um, you describe them as baby skin turtles, <coughs> and then they sound a bit creepy. Yeah, I mean, yeah, there's, yeah, okay, barely that. So uh, <laughs> they're unprotected. They're largely unprotected by their shells, right? So apparently uh, that, that leads them to being a little bit more defensive. So they're more eager to bite, and they've got really sharp teeth. So apparently it's safest mm. to hold them at their soft rear. Um, but you've got to be careful because they can nearly bend that far back anyway. Um, and apparently the skin is pliable and has lots of give, which helps them manoeuvre in the water. So it actually has an adaptive function being so soft, which is really cool. Yeah. Um, oh. And then, uh, yeah, Jack goes on to talk a little bit about uh, Rafitus swinhoei, which is Swinho's softshell turtle, as uh, they've got two wild individuals in Vietnam, but they're looking for more. So, yeah, awesome. Thanks for getting in touch. Um, and we just love hearing how soft turtles are and if anyone else has got a soft turtle story get in touch because i love it um, i want so many stories that we can have a soft shell turtle segment every (laughs) every episode (laughs) yeah and then um (coughs) oh yeah we had some corrections from uh, mark shirts on our species by week from last time where we did the uh new species of calaridon the um madagascan iguana apparently Mark, I mean, obviously Mark is all things Madagascar. He's actually out there at the moment, I think. I saw him tweeting some so. photos of Chameleon. Um, but apparently a Pluridae are called Swifts, not Iguanas, generally speaking, which I had, that does actually ring a bell now. Um, so they're generally called Swifts in terms of their common name. And uh, yeah, he agrees with me that the uh, Calaridon, I don't know if I said they have the most pronounced, but I, I was amazed by the, the parietal eye in the centre of the head. And um, yeah, Mark agreed that they have a very pronounced, and he thinks probably the most pronounced parietal eye of any adult lizard. And um, apparently you were right, a Pluridae is recognised as a family of its own now. Huh. The world so according to an actual to... taxonomist. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, 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 there's obviously some sort of ambiguity there. I've always, yeah. Yeah. I mean, there always is, though, isn't there? That's yeah. cool, though. Very cool. And it's good to know that that eye sticking out wasn't just oh look how obvious it is out of ignorance for how obvious other lizards are it was actually obvious yeah and i'd be remiss to mention mark again and not mention his podcast check out squamate's pod it's like this but with different people and slightly different stuff so (laughs) give it a listen (laughs) yeah nice mixture of voices on that podcast our voices are quite similar they've got a good mix of voices yeah, 
yeah, I mean that's that's the downside of coming from within several hundred miles of each other. <laughs> yeah, but you know, it's a good accent. I like it. it does me well. Um, <laughs> right on. So that's it. That's it. We've done it. We've uh, we've talked about climate change. Uh, Richard, I hope you enjoyed that episode. As your patron, if anyone else would like to be our patron, um, we're just Patreon.com/slash Highlights. Or if you Google it, you can find us. And if you want to, you can pick an episode. Um, what else we got? You got anything else, Ben? Or are we good to go? I think we're good to go. Um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, cool. that's um, it's, it's literally everything. I I hope it wasn't too dire an episode talking about climate change and things. And, you know, there are some mixed cool stories in there with, with Toads doing slightly better, perhaps. And mm-hmm. they, you know, not everything's dire, but we need to keep <coughs> on it. We need to be doing stuff. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, and also, we had an email this week about um, t-shirts. They do come in women's sizes and shapes, so they should. Yeah. I yes, mean, they do. I don't think I've put any limitations on Red Bubbles. Red Bubble, I, to be honest, the interface is pretty confusing. If you're looking for something specifically, if you're browsing, then it's you know away. But if you're actually searching for something, it can be a little bit uh, counterintuitive. But they should be there. Yeah, Absolutely I agree. Absolutely should yeah. be there. I it's mean, I will. Now you've reminded me, I'm going to double check right this second. Certainly they are for the King Cobra ones because I checked. Um, but yeah. So yeah, if you want to get in touch with us, I'm sorry, I should probably say you can buy a t shirt on our Redbubble site. You can find that by Googling. Um, if you want to get in touch with us, there's numerous ways to do so. Uh, we try and respond relatively quickly. Well, you can go to herphighlights at gmail.com or facebook.com slash herphighlights or we tweet together as a unit at herphighlights. Um, we're also individually on Twitter. You can find us from herphighlights there. And uh, yeah, I think that's about all that remains to be said. Sorry I've had such a husky voice and sorry the podcast is late. It's because I was really ill. Uh, you might be able to hear that I'm on the back end of that illness now, but hopefully it's not too bad. Yes. I think we're all good. Yeah, the, the ladies' shirts are up there. Oh no, about the the podcast in general. I'm having difficulty oh. working this damn website. Oh, that was more of a sort of general existential <laughs> comment on our well-being. I appreciate that as well. That's nice to hear. Yeah, yeah. I just I just forget how anything works. Like you can't <laughs> you can't mass edit things. You got to go into them individually, and then it for some reason the entire website is really zoomed in now. I like this, but I don't want, I don't think it has mass appeal, so I think we should cut it off and say thanks for listening. Thanks for listening. (laughs) Yeah.